do you want to eat a metaphorical tomato or a real tomato? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm John Barton. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests what vocation means both personally and collectively, and how discerning purpose is central to a meaningful life. Our guest today is Norman Wurzba, Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Christian Theology at Duke Divinity School and Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics. Norman's research, many books, and teaching coalesce at the intersections of ecology, agrarian and environmental studies, theology, and philosophy. He is currently the director of a multi-year project entitled Facing the Anthropocene, working with an international team of scholars to rethink academic disciplines in light of challenges like climate change, food insecurity, biotechnology, and genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, Species Extinction, and the Built Environment. Norman recently gave the keynote address at a NetView regional gathering on food and vocation. It is our pleasure to start Season 4 of Callings with this conversation. Norman, welcome to Callings. Oh, thank you. It's good to be with you. So, Norman, tell us something about your own sense of calling, or if that's even the language that you use, but your, your story of personal and professional formation, How did you come to do what you do or what or who nudged or guided you along the way? I'll start by saying I had no idea I would be doing what I'm doing now because as a kid, I was farming and I absolutely loved it. I loved being outside. I loved being with animals. I thought farming is what I was going to do. And, you know, I we didn't use the language of calling. We just said, if you love it, that's what you want to do. And, uh, I came into adulthood in the 80s when it was just a terrible time to be thinking about farming. And so I had to rethink entirely uh, what I was going to be up to. And, you know, I liked school a great deal and I loved the school atmosphere. And so I thought maybe I'd be a school teacher uh, and then have a hobby farm on the side. But um, I went to university in my local area in Lethbridge, Alberta, and I had history faculty. I was a history major who saw something in me and said, I think you could be a professor. Uh, You love this stuff. You're good at it. And that put me on a trajectory I could not have anticipated. And I owe it all to this bunch of professors who were amazing. I mean, they, they worked with someone who did not read books growing up and they took me into their offices for lunch and social gatherings and, and they're the ones who said, you know, we think you could, you know, apply to this program. And they helped me do the application process. And they really shepherded me because the farming community I grew up in, uh, they did not have academics in there at all. And so it was really those folks who who helped me see a different path than the one that I could have anticipated. And, you know, multiple years later, uh, I'm teaching at a university. Uh, I would never have guessed Duke, but, but here I am. 
So in your writing and teaching, you talk a lot about our, meaning the humans, relationship to land and a sense of rootedness. Right. You also link this to the creation story in the Christian tradition. I'm wondering if you can orient us to the idea of our relationship to the land that is core to so much of your thinking. Yeah. And I mean, it's so important. I mean, it started obviously being a kid, you know, being on the land every day, changing pipes, harvesting crops and so forth. Um, so I just had the smell and the feel of land in my bones from a very early age. But then when I had these professors say you could be an academic, land completely disappeared, right? I went mm-hmm. to study theology and then ended up doing a PhD in philosophy. And there was never a farmer on the curriculum. And I thought land was behind me. I thought agriculture was far behind me. And what changed it, again, is a person, right? I had been teaching at a small liberal arts college in Kentucky, and I asked a Kentucky native, could you tell me who's a good Kentucky writer I should be reading so I could learn about the culture of Kentucky? And they said, well, based on what we know about you, I think you'd really like this guy named Wendell Berry. And I had never heard of Wendell Berry. I had no idea who he was. And they, I said, well, what does he write? And they said, well, he writes poetry, he writes stories, and he writes essays. So I picked up some of all of them, and I loved them. And when I read The Unsettling of America, I realized that was our family story, right? That we, as a family farming in Western Canada, were dealing with this tension between industrial agriculture and traditions of animal husbandry. And it recalled me to myself is sort of the way I put it now. It gave me a way to integrate this first love that I had for the land. Because what Wendell does in his work is he gives a a position, an agrarian position, articulates it in a way so that you think it's not just about farming. It's not just for farmers, right? It's a whole way of describing the most basic questions about who are we, where are we, what should we do? And so Wendell sort of guided me. We became friends and he taught me about all these other agrarian writers from across the world through time who were making the case for why the land as the orientation center changes everything. And I had I had said this growing up, you know, that why don't city kids understand reality the way farm kids do? They just don't see things the same way. And so Wendell allowed me, gave me the instruction I needed and the encouragement to start to rethink what I was doing philosophically and theologically. Mm. And then another person that became really helpful to me later on uh, were some biblical scholars like my friend Ellen Davis. I mean, I had been reading scripture again, thinking about, well, where does the land show up? And you discover it shows up everywhere. But I'm not a biblical scholar. So, you know, what am I going to say that's going to be taken seriously by other biblical scholars? But then I learn about Ellen Davis, who writes this amazing book called Scripture, Culture, Agriculture, and it's an agrarian reading of the Bible. And we became friends again. And she encouraged me, take this insight that I had, this lived insight about how human beings are always embedded in the land and don't make any sense of themselves apart from the realities of land. And she helped me sort of read Scripture in different ways. And that brings us, obviously, uh, to that creation story, the second one. Uh, in Genesis 2 in particular, but uh, it's a story that a lot of theologians like Karl Barth, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they say, well, that's that's just sort of a mythological narrative. We don't have to really take it seriously, this idea that human beings are 
out of the land. But if you're an agricultural person, that's exactly how you make right. sense of life. And it's not, mm -hmm. it's not at all a, a fairy tale. It's the truth because the land circulates physiologically through our bodies every time we drink, breathe, or eat. Right. Yeah, it's not a metaphor. It's, no. uh... It is not a metaphor. And I, you know, sometimes people say, you know, the garden, that's just a metaphor. And I say, do you want to eat a metaphorical <laughs> tomato or a real tomato? Right. <laughs> Definitely the latter. <laughs> yes, indeed. I love the language that you use there of lived insight. And in your recent book, Agrarian Spirit, I really appreciated your discussion about the kinesthetic embodied experience as a right. deepening of our connection to place. And I'm just going to quote a small sentence here from the book. You write, what would it take for people to be so in touch with their places that they feel in their bodies the struggle and suffering, but also the strength and vitality of the creatures they are with? And later, you distinguish the difference between caring for a place as opposed to caring about it. Yeah. For those of us in higher education, this is a call to action in a way to get out of our heads and into our beings in yeah. places, this lived insight you just referenced. Can you talk about this necessity of the kinesthetic and embodied experience? As an agrarian writer, even though I'm not a farmer any longer, as an agrarian writer, the first thing you have to say is agrarianism is not a bucket of ideas. It's not a bunch of concepts. Mm -hmm. Agrarianism is a way of being in the world that is learned through the work that you do, right? So labor, handwork is absolutely central because the, the temptation, and this is something that, you know, some of the really great writers I've appreciated over the years have said is the temptation is to take an idea for the world, for the world itself. And that's the big mistake, because as I say in other places, that's the temptation of idolatry, that we take the world in the terms that we want it to be, rather than for how it is. And when you're in an agricultural space, and you're doing the work of raising crops or taking care of animals, it's the matter-of-fact materiality of the world that does not let you come to the world with fantasy, right? Because if an animal is sick, you got to deal with it. If a crop needs to be irrigated, you got to deal with it. When it's time to harvest, you got to deal with it. When there are rocks in the field, you got to pick them up with your hand. And it's that kinesthetic attachment to things that shatters the illusions that we have or the fairy tales we tell ourselves about not just the kind of world we're in, but our standing within the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember growing up, I would be very jealous about my city friends who could sleep in and they could sort of wake up in the morning and say, what do I want to do with my day? And that was not an option, you know, right. because in the summer, especially I'm up at four in the morning to change irrigation pipes. Cause if I don't, I will drown our crops and you got to milk the cow twice a day. Cause if you don't, that cow will be in pain and agony, right? So this idea that you can sort of set the world, the schedule for your life on the terms of your own choosing, is completely foreign to what I lived mm -hmm. and what I grew up with. And it's not just agricultural people. I think the long traditions of hunters and gatherers and foragers, it's a very similar situation. Your life has a set of expectations that are not chosen by you, 
but by the world. And what that does, it's not, it's not always agreeable. I did not like getting up at four in the morning. But what it does is it teaches you something about the reality of the world that takes you beyond fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if, if I can build off of that and turn the question again toward higher education. I mean, this is a podcast about undergraduate education yeah. and how that can be done well and ha- what value it has and how we can promote it. And, you know, you, you mentioned Wendell Berry uh, a few minutes ago, and I have him echoing in the back of my mind when I asked this question, but I, I'd like to ask you just about your assessment of higher education, given some of the things even that you just said about the nature yeah. of kind of being rooted in community, being rooted to the earth itself and similar themes that that you address and talk about. And yet higher education, there's so much about higher education today that is built on models of upward mobility um, that often carry with them themes of of leaving home in, in order to pursue something out there. And and yeah, and even yeah. being willing to go into debt in those pursuits, and I know you you discussed that as well. So you're concerned about all of those types of things, and you address them. But you're also an educator, and I, I'm wondering if you would share with us how you process some of that, and, and what that means for how you see the value, and maybe even the future of higher education. Yeah, well, there's so many good points to raise in your question there because um, it's basically about the question of human formation. How do we do that? And I think what what I've learned, you know, from agrarian traditions, but also agrarian ways of being is the most important thing about a human life is to figure out limits. And I think what a lot of our education does is it, it wants us to not just ignore limits, but constantly override limits because we'll sometimes tell students that you can do whatever you want to do. You can go anywhere you want to go. And, you know, I remember early on in my career reading this essay called The Rootless Professor, which was, it was very poignant because, you know, it's tempting when you're a new professor to think, okay, I'll do this for three or four years, I'll publish something, then I'll move on. And, and you just keep moving on. And And behind all of that is this ideal that life is supposed to be constantly open. It's supposed to be endless opportunity and we chafe at the idea that we have responsibilities that require us to limit our expectations for ourselves. And I think that's a deeply destructive uh, lure that we give to students and each other because we're obviously living in a world right now where the overriding of limits is showing itself to be so destructive of communities, of our places, and even our own personal health, right? This idea that we should just work nonstop, that we should constantly be working to optimize. And, you know, thinking here about undergraduates that come to Duke, which, you know, it's very competitive to get in. These are students who come having from a very early age thought only about building the resume that will get them into an elite university. And they never stop to ask, should I be doing this? Should I put a break on this? Because, if I just keep going down this path, it's going to lead to all sorts of trouble. And it really does. They come here and they don't know why they're here. They don't know what are they going to do when they leave other than continue this path of optimization. And, you know, a person who I think has been really helpful here is this German sociologist by the name of Hartmut Rosa, 
who has this thesis in which he says the acceleration of modernity is all about maximizing opportunity, optimizing everything that you can possibly do. And it's doing so much psychic mental health damage. It's doing so much damage to our neighborhoods because when you're constantly looking how to optimize, you don't look where you are to see, well, what are the needs here? What do I need to perhaps forego so that I can take care of this particular person, this particular neighborhood? And and so this, this drive uh, for more, this drive for what we think is a kind of excellence, which I begin to think really isn't, because the metrics by which we judge excellence are all about quantity measures rather than quality measures. And so the minute you start talking about quality, you have to start talking about limits. Yeah, that raises so many other questions that I have that I would love to explore with you. But if I, if I can add one more layer to that, just based on what you just sure. said, you, you're talking about optimization and excellence. We often talk about in higher education, the value of the liberal arts and a liberal arts education. Right. You know, the idea of a liberal arts education is wrapped up in ideas of freedom and being empowered and being liberated from certain kinds of, of shackles, I guess you would say. And you're, you're kind of addressing those things uh, in various ways, but could you get a little bit more specific on how do you think about the notion of freedom? and liberation yeah. like what what are what are we needing to be liberated from yeah yeah and and what is what is freedom if it involves limitations how how do we how do we process all that yeah yeah that's a fabulous question john i think the way i'm putting it now is i i have no objection to sort of the movements of freedom liberation emancipation that we see in modern societies right I'm totally for the freedom of women and all sorts of things that have been so wonderful about modern liberalism. But on the other hand, there is this sort of contrast that Isaiah, you know, Berlin and others have made about freedom from or freedom for. And, and that's, that's, you know, pretty helpful. But the way I put it now is freedom without fidelity becomes irresponsible mm-hmm. and fidelity without freedom becomes oppressive, right? So freedom, in my view, always has to have as its partner the question of fidelity, right? Because if you just exercise the life that you choose for yourself, you're going to do a lot of damage to the people and the places that in fact, in terms of your physiological needs, right, are baked into who you are, right? You're going to hurt the very people that make your life good. And so while you're trying to exercise, right, your capacities, right, the gifts that God has given you, for instance, You're always doing that in the context of a community in a place, which requires you to say, well, what does the community recommend? What does the community need? What does the place recommend? What does the place need? But at the same time, if you're just always thinking about what the community needs or what the place needs and you forget about yourself, there's no freedom, right? Because your life is just yoked to what everybody else is always telling you. And so this this interplay between freedom and fidelity is a kind of dance that you have to work out. And it's it's something that you work out with others because we can so easily fuel, fool ourselves about when we are free and when we are not or when we are being faithful and when we are not. And so we work this out together because the best life, right, in my view, is a life in which you are able to exercise your capacities, discover them, develop them, 
but it's done in a communal context because there is no goodness or happy life if you're completely alone, right? Alienated, isolated from all the people that would make your life meaningful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you don't want yourself to disappear in this sort of collective, which is, I think, been a problem for all sorts of, of, of especially marginalized peoples who've not been given a voice, right? They've not been given the opportunity to develop agency and the sense that what they're working for is something like self-discovery, self-realization. I um, had the chance to hear you speak at the NetView conference centered around food and vocation, which have to be the two best topics, I think, <laughs> to uh, pair together in a keynote address. In your talk, you spoke about how we are hungry to the core. Yes. And you mentioned ideas about savoring and fasting and eating as part of our vocational identities. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, yeah. you know, what it means to be hungry to the core and how that helps us understand our, our vocations. Yeah. Yeah. So the best way to start this, I think, is to say that when you're bringing food into the question of vocation or hunger into the question of vocation, what you're really doing is you're opening up the question about who is the human person that could even have a vocation. And I think what we've got mistaken is that we think that the human being is the single solitary thing that can then say, okay, what should I do in the world as if you don't already exist in a world that's always influencing you, right? That you need desperately, right? And hunger communicates that, right? The fact that mm -hmm. after, you know, a couple of hours, four hours or 20 minutes, depending on who the person, that you get hungry again is an indication that human beings are the kinds of creatures that always need, right? We could not ever be by ourselves self-sufficient. So now the question about, well, what should I do with my life? It becomes distributed because it's no longer just about what you want to do for your life. It's also about all the things, all the creatures, all the metabolic processes, all the geobiochemical processes that are filtering through your life all the time that need to be in your mind and heart as you think about, well, what would a good life be in my situation, right? So, you know, I think one of the ways to get at this um, new kind of anthropology that eating opens up is to say that we don't live in the sort of subject voice, but we live in the middle voice. And now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're thinking about yourself as a subject who simply acts upon a world, right? You are the agent in control of what you do in that world. But what the middle voice says is, well, wait a minute, you don't ever just act upon the world because your action with respect to others is also always a reflection of others having worked through you. And in education, we talk about this all the time, where we say, your ideas are not just your own. You're always the beneficiary of so many people, thinkers, writers, artists, who have thought and created before you. And what they have done is they now circulate through you in your own thinking. And so you never think alone, right? You never live alone because you're always witnessing in your speech, in your action, 
to the speech and the action of others who have influenced you along the way. Now, what does that mean for vocation? Oh, my goodness. It means, first of all, you have to be thinking about a common good because there is no personal good apart from the context being good in which you live. And, and that becomes, I think, a game changer because it's tempting to think about vocation in sort of a Promethean position or maybe even just the cowering position where you feel I have no agency. But, but the ideal, I think, is to, to get rid of both of those temptations, Promethean and cowering, and just sort of take a humble, generous, grateful position within the world. And so your vocation is something that's a communal exercise. I mean, there is a you, but because we're assuming that you're living in the middle voice, it's never just you. And, and I know that that raises all kinds of questions about agency and responsibility and those kinds of things. But when we start understanding our lives, not just in terms of sort of a sociological or a social political dimension, but also an ecological dimension, that now enables us to think about vocation in a much, much larger frame so that we can't make this dreadful mistake, which would be to say, I could be happy when everybody around me is unhappy and the world around me is sick and dying, mm -hmm. right? That would be yeah. a false happiness, not just because it has these harmful effects, but because it's not true to who you are. So to stay on this topic of food a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in, in your book, you do the Agrarian Spirit book, the most recent one, you use apple pie. Oh, yes. As an example. <laughs> I, and I mean, this may be revealing my bias as a reader, but um, there, there were many, many references to food um, in, in the book. But I, I wanted, I, I thought it was a really effective way to talk about the links between practical skills and material intelligence yeah, And I mean, this sort of relationship between ourselves and others in an ecological sense. And so I, I just wondered if, you know, if you don't want to use the apple pie example, that's fine. But could you talk a little bit about the ways in which we can learn from apple pie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, I love apple pie. I mean, apple pie a la mode. I mean, what, what's, what could be much better than that? I don't know. I mean, there are some things that are equally good, but... It's just fabulous, right? Right. But for me, the question is, how did anybody think that you could even do that? Right? And that already yeah. assumes an understanding of these of human beings as creative beings. And by creative, I don't mean creative in the sense of that sort of solitary torture genius who sort of is in obscurity trying to make something from out of themselves. No, I'm talking about creativity, which is a participation in the unfolding of the world. And you can only do that if you get into the world, because somebody had to figure out that, A, you can take butter and you can take flour, or before that, you could take wheat and make it into flour, right? Mm -hmm. And that you could take some water and a little salt and you could have a flaky crust. Incredible, right? <laughs> or that you could take something like milk and make ice cream. Incredible, yeah. right? Now, all of that, what it's doing is it's showing you how your identity, which is to say your joy, your discovery about what you love, what gets you excited, but also the discovery of what you're not good at. I mean, all these things that we sort of place within the confines, which is 
not the best word, I guess, but within the parameters of an identity, these things always get worked out through our engagement with the more-than-human world, with a more-than-personal world. And, and what I worry about is that when we don't have the kind of creativity, the, even the kind of curiosity that takes us out into the world and then by engaging it, you know, with whatever skills that we have, because trust me, it takes a lot of skill to get a really flaky crust. Right? You have to learn these things, but you learn them by being in touch with a world being open to instruction from the world and from people who have a history of baking already in hand where they can say, you know, if you want to do a really good crust, make sure the butter stays cold or whatever. You, there's all these things that we learn. But here's the kicker. The more we immerse ourselves in what we could describe as the form of the world, which is to say it's built in limits and possibilities, the more we have the potential to make wonderful things like apple pie or that we can make these incredible discoveries about meaning and beauty, right? The whole effort of human beings to make a way in the world so that we can say this life has been a worthwhile, even praiseworthy life depends upon you, first of all, engaging it on its terms. And that means you can't just sort of rest with the idea of the world or the idea of yourself that you wish you could have, but isn't true to either. I just love how that example emphasizes, you know, the materials of butter, wheat, fruit, but also the aesthetic and artistic, you know, experience of those things as well. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of brings forward the sacramental and the sacred experience too. In in all of these these things, I think this is a, a really important pause for us as we consider how we're sort of called into the work of learning on many different different levels. Yeah. Wendell Berry has this wonderful line. I don't remember where it is exactly, but he says, the world is a holy vision that people depend on other people to make. Mm. Okay. Because the temptation is to think that the world just is. And you know, this is this this way of speaking is rife in so many university contexts. The world just is what it is. And of course, from just an ordinary point of view, you might say, oh, they're right. The world just is what it is. But that position, I would argue, reflects already a person who has distanced themselves from the world. Because insofar as you are involved in something like food production or home construction or you know any of the basic things for what we might call livelihood, you're constantly running against or up to this realization that the world is gift, that the world doesn't have to be, but it is. And in its being, it reflects beauty and goodness. Also terror, but there's so much beauty and goodness in this world. And to think that it simply is, is to immediately have evacuated the world of its deeper significance and it really raises, I think, troubling questions for people who then say, well, if the world just is, why should I care about it? Why should I care about its maintenance? Why should I care about its healing? Why should I care about things like justice? And and we're seeing that. I mean, we're seeing that in the way that so much of the world is being put up for commodification. And it's deeply troubling because when you try to commodify things, 
you're invariably going to suppress the gracious character of things, the fact that they are fundamentally gifts uh, that need to be cherished and received rather than simply grasped and commodified. One of the things that strikes me when I when I hear you talk about these things, and you can tell me if I'm hearing this right or, or what, what further reflections you have on it, but in your work, you address a lot of really big and even, we could say, threatening issues in our world. A lot of things that bring anxiety to people, environmental threats, uh, social yeah. threats. I mean, all, all kinds of, of things that can create anxiety and fear. You, you also talk about, I think the language that you use is, is how humans are kind of perpetually dissatisfied. And so you have, these, you have these existential challenges, you have these environmental challenges, all these, all these things yeah. swirling around us. And yet so much of what you talk about, even in this conversation, just kind of exudes these themes of, of graciousness and the sacredness of the world and the sacredness of life to um, kind of talk about one of your books or one of the titles of one of your books. How do you hold these things together? The hope and the gratitude for life's gifts and yet a a real and open and critical stance toward the threats and and how we, you know, as, as we talk about undergraduate students that have increasing levels of anxiety, for example, how do you hold all that together? Yeah, it's a really great question. I um I just finished a little book on hope that I wrote because I have so many I have young adult children and I have a lot of their friends in uh, in my world and I teach undergrads now some I teach a course on climate change to the Duke University undergrads and I'll tell you the levels of anxiety are are deep and many of them say we're not going to have children, right? There's just you know there's obviously climate change which is a huge, huge uh, issue for so many young people. But the list is long, as you say, about, you know, social anxiety and political breakdown and, oh, my mental health issues. And so as I was thinking, how do you talk about hope in a context like that? And I realized, learned very quickly, you can't assume that people want hope. Hmm. Because for a lot of younger people, they're deeply suspicious of anybody who says, oh, just have some hope now. And it's it usually takes two forms. One of them is the religious version, which says, hey, don't worry, God's got this, which is rubbish. And then the second one is, you know, Elon Musk is going to save us, yeah. which is also rubbish, yeah. right? So there's a technological and a religious kind of escapism that doesn't take the world seriously and it creates what this friend of mine, an indigenous philosopher named Kyle White, calls the ultimate bystander effect, mm. where you don't have to worry about addressing the problems of this world because somebody else is going to take care of it, whether it's a, a technological genius or some big daddy deity in the sky who's just going to take care of all the troubles. And and I think both of those are are deeply destructive and rightly by young people are completely shunned. Say, don't even talk about that stuff with me. So then the question is, well, what's left? (laughs) How do you talk about hope once you've given up those two sort of versions of hope? And, and I, you know, as I do these conversations with people, you know, sometimes at the end of it, because this is the way that you sort of save all the bad talk you've just done, 
is you say, well, what gave me hope was X, Y, and Z. And I say, that's entirely the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask now is not what gives you hope, but what do you love? And the reason I switched the question now is the, the question that says what gives you hope makes hope sound something like a vaccine. It's a thing. And if you've got it, you're protected. Or like a security blanket. If you've got hope, you're going to be all right. And, and I just don't believe that. What you need to be thinking about hope is to say that it's not a thing that you have. It's an action you participate in. And that action is a loving action. And it's not because, you know, there's some sort of romantic notion that I've got going on here that if you do love, everything's going to be okay. No, love is the kind of activity that you do often in defense of what's being wounded, right? That's where you begin to see the need for love in a way that you maybe didn't anticipate it, right? So when I talk with young people, I say, what do you really care about? What do you deeply love? And what can you do to be an agent of healing, an agent of repair? or an agent even of witness in the face of that damage. And when they do that work, they don't know how it's going to turn out because nobody knows how it's going to turn out. But what they do when they give that love to the world or to each other or to their communities, they do the good work that could potentially at least forestall a greater nightmare coming down the way. Right? I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm so opposed to even optimism is optimism is a real status quo concept. Everything's going to be okay. That's what optimism says. When in fact we know it's not all going to be okay, but as long as you say it's all going to be okay, you've given your excuse to do nothing. But if you say, no, what do we love? You don't have an excuse now. Because if you love it, you're going to do something on its behalf. You're going to do something to protect it, to cherish it. And so the love, right, it doesn't just sort of forestall what could be a much worse scenario. I think what the love does as you're going along the way, you also create joy. Because when you commit yourself to healing or befriending or or being an agent of repair, you enjoy the beauty that comes from it. You enjoy the gladness that comes from it. And yeah, there's going to be pain. You don't need to stress that. Everybody knows there's going to be pain, but there's also going to be real moments of wonder and delight along the way. Yeah. And would you agree that critical thinking and, and some of the roles of education also come in here, uh, even with questions like not just what do you love, but what is worth loving and how do we assess that and how do we work toward that? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And And this is where, you know, I think one of the most important things that liberal arts education can do is it can confront students with themselves, right? And give a multi-textured, multi-layered sort of set of lenses by which we can set the spotlight on ourselves and say, who the heck are we? What are we? And who are we in relation to others? Who are we in relation to our places? So that when we start asking the question, what's a good thing for me to do? you first of all have some sense of who you are and where you are. Right. Norman, I um, was just reflecting on, you know, your discussion there about sort of hope and love and the difference between those things. And a friend of mine at Furman University, Megan Slining, talks about building sustainable vocations 
with students. And that was really resonating with me about how to, how do we talk with students about caring sort of this burning world on, on our shoulders and also sort of having skills for the long haul to, you know, work towards healing that world. And the idea of love is, is a really, really important piece of that. I appreciate that. So as we um, close here, I wondered if you had any additional closing advice you would offer for young adults or college students as they think about their education and their future life and work and their fears and hopes. Well, I think I would just pick up a little bit on what you you were saying a minute ago, which is about sustaining um, hope, sustaining vocation. And And for me, the real key in all of that is having a community of people that are with you in the discerning, in the sort of disciplining, and in the realization of whatever life you're going to perform. I think there's a reason why uh, Scripture doesn't ever talk about individuals, right? You are part of a community, you're part of a family, or to use the New Testament language of Paul, you're an ecclesial being. You're just one member of a larger body. And this is so, so important because when you're by yourself or when you think that your life is by yourself, you have to figure out where am I going to get my energy from? Where am I going to get my inspiration from? And, you know, even if you're asking about inspiration, you might just be bullheaded and say, I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do. But if you begin to realize that you yourself are a needy, vulnerable being, that you constantly are are requiring other people to help you, to help you figure out difficult questions, to help you get through basic daily tasks like feeding yourself or transporting yourself here and there, right? When you begin to see how much your life actually is immersed in the lives of others, that your life is always being with others, then you have an opportunity to not just have more honesty about who you are, but also more honesty about what you should do with yourself. Because when I'm by myself, I can think about all the great things I can do. And and then, you know, my wife will come along and say, oh, Norman, come on. <laughs> you know, because she sees things that I don't see. And I'll have friends who will see things that I don't see, colleagues who will see things I don't see. And they help me understand better, not just what I think I should do, but the context in which I want to do it. Right, So having a community of people that you can constantly be going to and saying, does this sound right to you? Does this seem like a good idea? That becomes a way to sort of discover more about yourself, discover more about the world, but also get some real clarity about what next steps should be for you. Because the truth of the matter is, is that none of us know what we will be doing 10 years from now. But what we want to know is that 10 years down the road, we've not done stupid things where we've made big mistakes because we didn't bother to ask anybody or consult with anybody or listen to anybody because it's in that listening, speaking, dialogical relationship with each other that that we can really make the steps uh, to do better things rather than worse things. And I think the best of all communal contexts would be to surround yourself with the people who really care about you, who really love you. Because if they really love you, they're going to want what's best for you. And that's always negotiated space, right? Someone will say, I think this is best for you. And I'll say, no, I don't think so. Uh, But 
that's something that you work out. But as long as you know you've got people around you who care about you, that makes even the pains and the mistakes that are invariably going to happen, it makes them bearable. It doesn't always fix things, but at least makes it bearable. And you know that in the context of wrongdoing, there can be mercy and you can try again. And I think what so many of us want is to know that there is mercy and that when we fail, there will be others who aren't going to walk away, but they're going to say, yeah, we messed up. We could have helped you. We should have helped you. You should have listened to us or whatever. And and now you can take the next step again. Norman, thank you so much for your time and insight and good descriptions of apple pie. We, uh, <laughs> we really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, it's great to be with you both. What a rich and fun conversation with Norman Wurzba today. So much to think about. I'll be thinking about it for a long time. I just really am drawn to his writing and speaking and, you know, thinking about the land. And I was struck when he was telling his own story about how he said that he thought he had left the land behind him as he went into his work as a professor. And then when he encountered the work and then friendship of Wendell Berry to say, you know, he was really recalled to himself. And I love that notion being recalled because I think that that happens for a lot of people where you sort of are drawn to an, another and very important piece of your calling, but then want to kind of return or integrate right. all of the aspects of your calling. And, and that's, that's what he really captured in his own, own sense of purpose at this moment. Yeah, to see how different parts of your calling at different parts of your life can sometimes find themselves coming together in, in important and powerful ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me is the way that he addressed the theme of agency and, and, and what it means to be called to be, I think the phrase he used uh, was called to be agents of repair. Um, to have agency in the repairing of the world, in the constructive addressing of some of the world's challenges. And and it struck me the way that he talked about how we can sometimes look for a way out of our agency, and that can be done by maybe through superficial understandings even of God, you know, that, you know, God's right. got this, so I don't need to do anything, <laughs> or uh, kind of unrealistic expectations about human Uh, uh, saviors, uh, whether it's technology or, you know, what Elon Musk will provide for us. And he he was calling us back to avoiding those cop-outs in a sense and embracing our agency. But the other thing that that really struck me is that when he talked about agency, he wasn't just talking about in individual Mm -hmm. terms or or kind of autonomous agency, but he he talked about it in terms of love, yeah, and yeah. that uh, that it's it's communal and it, it's it's about relationship and it's about love and it, it it struck me the way he used love is the framework for agency even more than a concept like hope and certainly yeah. more than optimism, but he drew us back to this theme of love. Yeah, it was a really, I think, important way to end a conversation as we think about our relationship to the world 
you know, within an embedded ecology with each other. I, I did think that a through line, while he may not have said it directly, there there is a through line in the conversation about friendship and yeah. this this idea of, you know, sort of being in basic friendship with local community, with agriculture, with food systems, you know, with each other. And, yeah. you know, he, he listed a lot of his own mentors and friends, his advice for undergraduates rested on having a community who loves you. And I, I think this very deep, deep sense an abiding sense of friendship, not in a superficial way, but in a, a very intentional way was a beautiful idea that that Norman brought forward. Yeah, very, very powerful and very relevant for ideas of vocation. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education an association of over 300 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Your hosts were John Barton and Aaron Van Lanningham. The editor and assistant producer for the episode was Marion Edwards, and our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu.